You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living human, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello everyone, this is episode 39 of Mission Lab. I'm so glad that you've tuned in uh, to listen to this episode. I am really excited because I have a special guest with us today. I've been trying to urge her to come on to the, the show and we finally secured her. So I want to introduce you to my very, very good friend, Dr. Judith Josiah Martin. So thank you for being on with us, Judy. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we had your husband on a few weeks ago. Well, I hope that that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and we've now roped you into our, uh, our, our studio, as it, as it were, uh, yeah. here in our, our living room in Bangor. Uh, yeah. So Judy is a part of our church family. She's a part of our missional community, but... Beyond that, Judy, why don't you take a minute or two to describe what else your life is characterized by? Uh, well, um, from a career point of view, I'm a social worker. I've been a clinical social worker now for about 35 years. And um, my passion has always been working with women and mental health issues, depression, depression um, suicide, uh, substance abuse, and those kinds of things. And um, in general, I have a passion for um, helping people to look at uh, well-being and spirituality all in one. I'm a mom of two beautiful adult girls. And um, currently, I work for the University of Maine. I'm on the faculty at the School of Social Work here in uh, Orono, Maine. I teach full-time. And... Uh, that's a nice break from being uh, a direct practice social worker, and I'm really enjoying the thrill of education. Nice. You recently completed your PhD. I, yes, yes, it was a bucket list item <laughs> um, that uh, I started back, I think, in the year 2000. When, the, when 2000 was coming, I thought I needed to do something big, and so I was going to go do a doctorate, and of course, it only took me 17 years to get that <laughs> done, but uh, so yes, I just finished my um, PhD in clinical social work at Smith College in Massachusetts. Wonderful. Now, the astute listener may detect an accent, a slight mm -hmm. accent. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where are you from originally? So I was born in the little beautiful Caribbean island of Antigua. My parents are Antiguans. I have two sisters. And um, we all migrated back in the late 1970s, my, my sister right after me and myself. Um, so we've lived here on and off for the last 40 years. Okay. Um, but um, in many ways, Antigua is still home. We go back. We have lots of family and friends there. So. You're, you'll be escaping to Antigua shortly, in a few weeks. Very shortly. <laughs> and Camille yeah. would like to jump into your suitcase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about uh, a few different things that I've, I've wanted to explore with you on the podcast. First of all, just let's talk about uh, being a part of our missional community. Uh, you've been with us since the very beginning. Of course, it didn't start per se as a missional community, but it kind of evolved into that. 
Um, what's your experience been? What has it meant to you? Uh, how has it kind of impacted your own faith journey? Well, um, it speaks right to the heart of my legacy as a, as a Christian and as a Seventh-day Adventist, the whole idea of small group missional um, work. Hmm. Um, I come from a family that's always been in very small group kind of outreach, hmm. uh, relational ways of being with people. And of course, it marries well with social work, um, <laughs> ethic and values and all of that. Um, and it's really, you know, at this point in my life, it's really good to find purpose in my Christian journey. And I think it's pointless to have my Christian journey be just about uh, church going. Mm. And um, it's nice to have an opportunity to be very focused in how I do my Christian journey, which is to demonstrate Christ in a very relational way with people. And mm. so this opportunity to be a part of this community has been a powerful motivator mm. um, and also um, has uh, helped to deepen, if you will, or further my own um, relationship with Christ. And so it's it's been a godsend. Yeah, um, It's nice also, not nice, it's enriching to be able to um, be very purposeful in looking at the people in my circle and um, developing or furthering relationships that help to foster conversations of which, you know, that I can introduce mm. the values of which I believe. Yeah. yeah you were just mentioning just this last Friday night when we were gathering that you still do have this kind of traditional mindset when it comes to church and evangelism. So how, how has it kind of stretched you a bit hmm. by this, this, uh, this recent journey? Well, you know, um, when I was younger, I loved the identity of being a third-generation Seventh-day Adventist, you know. <laughs> so we, I'm a diehard, you yeah. know. I, I have been, um, I come from a family of Adventists that have been church leaders, conference presidents, um, pastors, church school teachers. I mean, we're deep in. And so all of the ways of being a Christian has really been about being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, and that has a very prescriptive way of mm. looking. And so um, this, this thing about being um, relational and doing mission in a very different way outside of an evangelistic meeting or track distribution, or even just doing church, um, outside of your traditional um, divine hour, um, very scripted program thing, um, challenges me. I mean, I mean, something that's laid down so as old as I am in me, <laughs> I mean, change is not easy for anybody from any kind of psychological point of view. And so it's been a challenge to even stop catching myself thinking certain things. And it's not necessarily that I'm a opposed to anything that mm -hmm. we're doing. It's just a matter of the tr old training just pops right there. Mm -hmm. And you have to say, hold on here a moment. You know, it's not wrong. It's just an and, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know. And um, so it stretched me in a good way. 
um, because I think that the whole issue of the journey with Christ is a flexible one. It's, it's, it's one that moves with people and the, um, the ways of life. It's not script and it's mm. not static. It's a very active thing. And the role model that we get in the New Testament from Christ is active, vibrant, and changing, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And to, so it's good. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's, at my age, it's nice to be challenged. <laughs> in at the your age. At my age, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, one of the things I want to unpack a little bit is uh, early on in our our missional community life, we we had a lot of conversations around race. And, um, you know, it's Black History Month now. Uh, what probably many of our listeners don't understand is that in the state of Maine, it is literally, this is not an embellishment or exaggeration, it is literally 96% white. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and in our country, racial tensions are at, a, at an all-time high again. And we've had a lot of conversations in our missional community about those types of issues and, and just really listening to one another um, maybe you could, if you don't mind, just sharing just a little uh, peek into what your experience has been like in general in the state of Maine as being a, a incredible minority, uh, but mm-hmm. also just in the United States now as these racial tensions have have really resurfaced to a high fever pitch again. Mm-hmm. Well, I. You know, one of my, when we first started talking about this, you know that I had a strong reluctance to Mm -hmm. um, speaking to these issues. Um, In Maine, I've been here for almost 11 years now. And when I came to Maine, I came and I, my first job was the director of multicultural student life at the University of Maine. And my mission was how to help students of color make life in such a, uh, a community um, feel safe and feel that they have a sense of belonging. And so that opened the door for me to really get a glimpse of what it is to be a racial minority in a state of Maine. And um, for me, I've not had any major challenges personally. Um, Again, I think my so- being a social worker, I blend very well in a lot of different places, and I have a, a relational flexibility to get along with a lot of different types of people and be at ease. But um, the racial issues that plagued the country over the last 10 years have sort of gotten under my psychic self a mm. little bit, and I've felt... Uh, um, deep wounds and um, a sense of um, who can you trust? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you look around, when I talk to my siblings who live in Georgia and and different friends around the country, and I hear hear the types of um, uh, safety steps that they have to take for themselves and their children, and it wounds you that you have to walk around with a sense of caution just because of what you look like on the outside. And I remember in one of the recent um, um, 
shootings of a black gentleman that I had a very visceral kind of reaction to it, um, almost panic, not almost, actually an anxiety reaction, um, being afraid to leave home or pass a police um, a car or anything like mm. that. Just this real deep inside my body feeling of I'm not safe as a black person in this community mm. of being a racial minority. And um, and I'm not I'm I'm not alone. And it's very hard to explain to people who are non um, who are not people of color, um, or to explain to white people what it is like to live in a black body in a in a society like ours, because um, most white people don't walk around having a sense of being white. They just walk around having a sense of being human. Mm. And um, that's not the same thing as always having to be mindful that you're a black person. Um, and there are some very pointed uh, ways in which you're constantly reminded I did an experiment once with some students. I used to work very closely with um, the Black Student Union, and we went to the grocery store in Orono um, one day, and I asked the store manager to videotape my little experiment. And as the students walked into the grocery store, they, were, they went in in groups of two, about five different groups, about 10 students in all. And it was so remarkable, the reaction of people just seeing a black person in an aisle, you know. Um, people pull their kids closer to them or um, uh, workers in the store following the students. Around. We actually caught it on mm. videotape. Mm. And you might say, oh, that's just a one-off. But I could give you a gazillion ways in which um, people double look at you. Um, when you go into places, it's happened to me, um, mm. you know, and you just keep pretending like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But how how often can you pretend that something doesn't matter and it doesn't eventually hurt you, mm. you know? Mm. So, I mean, I don't make these things stop me from being out in my world and engaging. But it's just that one thing, one little thing that adds to another little thing that you just carry mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And so there is, a, um, it does, you know, I live in the woods, so, <laughs> so it's easy to be invisible, if you will. But um, what a thing to have to try to be. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, when, you know, we've had these conversations, um, I always considered myself to be somewhat open to and sympathetic to um those who have had a different experience with me, but I think having those conversations was even more eye-opening that gave me even greater sympathy. And obviously I'm still growing. I'm mm, not, yeah. it's not as though I completely understand. Mm -hmm. um, but just how having that circle mm -hmm. where it's safe to share mm -hmm. and to ask and to have that conversation mm -hmm. it just seems like it's an invaluable way to help each other understand one mm -hmm. another and it is it is and it's also it it's nice to have a safe place to 
say particularly to white people <laughs> what you do hurts <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and not get the standard which is but i love everybody mm-hmm. or all I, lives matter or all lives <laughs> matter or um this is stuff that um is is it's rare i mean it is not rare i mean we only hear about the um most graphic ones, whether it's in the media or what, but there are all kinds of oppressions and, and I mean, stuff that really hurts people, um, their lives, their children happening every day. And when I hear people saying that um, people just being hypersensitive, it wounds you that you get so easily dismissed mm-hmm. by well-meaning people. Um, and that you can't rely on your friends to advocate for the oppression of a group of people. Um, that is that 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 bother, that just that mm-hmm. just does something to mm-hmm. you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's nice to be in a group in with people that you can really talk about what's really happening and how it really affects you, and at least have people have an interest in. Um, recognizing their own ignorance, um, their own lack of awareness, their their own way that their privilege hurts me or their privilege um, enables a system that hurts. And I'm using the word me in a in a general way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's just it's just it's incredible and and even so even when you're in a group of people who want to hear you have to dig down into courage because there is that part of you that says you want to hear and do i want to expose myself to Mm -hmm. how hurt i really am about all of this Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. or you go on facebook and you see um um well, me, or you, you see people that, you know, making comments that, you know, can't possibly do any good for the race that you you are a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that adds to my God, you can't trust anybody, mm-hmm. you know, because even people who you think should understand demonstrate a, a level of ignorance, ignorance that just mm-hmm. blows your mind, mm-hmm. you know. And and after a while, you, the burden of having to explain to people, you just say, whatever, mm. <laughs> you know, and just try to. Yeah, you know, so we don't we don't have to go into uh, much detail because we want to be sensitive to um, confidentiality. But there there I'm thinking of one situation in our missional community where you had a friend that is from a foreign country that is not the majority of uh, ethnic, you know, composition here in the United States and the anxiety she had after some of the stuff and then coming into our missional community. And I seem to remember you saying that it brought some level of, of healing to be able to be in a group of white people that took an interest in her and were safe. Mm-hmm. Yes, I um, I have a friend who has uh, three kids who go to who went to school in in this general area, and when um, some stuff was happening and was very much in the media at that time, 
the anxiety that she felt uh, for herself and her children. She took them out of school. She took them out of the accident. She had them at home. She refused to let them go outside. And again, it's trying to get people to understand mm. what, when you see a, uh, a black man being shot down, who is walking away or for whom there's absolutely no reason why that life was taken. And you have two black sons. And as a mother, you say, I cannot let my I can't take the risk of letting my child go out there. Um, and for a lot of people, it might seem extreme and you might say, oh, but not everybody's going to do that. But you don't know who will, mm -hmm. you know, and... Um, she was she was totally feared and and i truly understood exactly what that felt like and even if even though i don't have um uh, any sons or I, I didn't have any, i don't have any children living with me i felt like it could be me mm -hmm. you know and um so you know we i invited her uh to this to our community meeting our communal missional meeting and she felt like in a room of white people that who could look at her and she could look at them and she could trust and she could feel the love and support from them. She felt like it was like water to a soul in a mm. desert, you mm. know. And um, I spent quite a bit of time with her and she came several times to, uh, with the children and even the children. Um, I remember going over to their homes and, and them saying how much they enjoyed coming over to Cameron and Ellie's mm. house, for example, and being around white men and not being afraid. Mm. And it was it in just that little act of coming over and being, you know, that that the guys in, in our group were actually reaching out and asking them how they were doing at school and inviting them. They actually felt a relief. They felt a return to a sense of normalcy. Mm. Um she sent them back to school. They got back into their extracurricular activities. But for those, for that particular family, it was a moment of healing. Mm. It was a moment mm. of peace. It was a reestablishment that um, God still, even in the midst of all this crazy stuff that happens in our world and in our society, uh, God still has a group of Christian people of all races that care about each other. Mm. And that's a powerful message that does not always come through in our Christian family. Mm. Mm. Um, very often, Christians appear to be a part of the oppressors. Mm. Mm. And so it's really um, something to be in a group of people who have who have taken a stand not to be a part of the oppressor. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for going over those details again. Um, you know, one question that comes to mind as you're describing that is it seems like one of the challenges we have, and whether it's those of us who are, you know, white or even, you know, wh whatever the circumstances are, one of the challenges we have is we, when we hear people say something, 
we seemingly want to immediately delegitimize their feelings yes. and say, well, that's not right to feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't be scared mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, how, I mean, how do we how do we get past that and we just empathize with somebody where they are and not try to correct them and mm-hmm. say, well, no, you don't feel that way or you shouldn't feel that way or, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? How, how, yeah. do we, how do we grow out of that? Well, I might have to throw some social work ease <laughs> at you, but it is, um, it, you know, we, we're taught that we are to be, we are to start where people are, that, mm-hmm. um, that being empathic is not about listening to people from your ears, but listening to people from their experience. Mm. That we validate and affirm people, not based on what I think they should have experienced or or what my interpretation of the experience is, but just simply accepting the fact that somebody's telling me their truth. Mm -hmm. And my job is to honor a person's truth. That's how we love people, you know, families, with our children, with our spouses. I mean, the thing that makes relationships grow is that we validate people in their experience, not mm. in what we want their experience to be. Mm. And, um, and I think if we start there, um, I also think that we have to change our dialogue I tell my students all the time, got to get rid of yes, but Mm. because yes, but is a no. Um, You know, it should be yes, period. Mm. I understand or help me to understand that. I I don't get that. I can't relate to that. Tell me more. I want to know more. I want to understand truly. Those are some of the leading um, statements that a person who really wants to affirm somebody can make. Um, even, even just saying truthfully, I don't understand that. I, 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 that doesn't, I can't get that. Um, oftentimes I hear my students of color say they would rather people ask them questions than act on stereotypes and assumptions. Mm, mm. And I feel the same way. Um, I'd rather somebody ask me something than try to make a very passive, uh, applicating kind of statement or just making a feel good statement. Um, or you can say something like, you know, I don't understand. And I hope that I want to know, and maybe we could spend some time having a conversation later. That's much realer than saying stuff like, or oh, I just love everybody, or <laughs> I don't see color. And and let me make a point about that, because when people make the statement, I don't see color, it scares me. Mm. Because for you not to see that I'm the only black person sitting in this room, mm. um, my skin is one of the oldest parts of my identity. It's being a black person is part of who I am. And so for you not to see color means that you don't see me. Mm. And that's a big statement. Mm. It's a big nonverbal. Um, and also, it's, it m- can make your friends or the people that you know of color, uh, you can put them in very unsafe situations. For example, if you and Camille come from a family where there's a lot of um, negative or destructive talk about people of color in your family with your siblings. And because you don't see color, you invite me over to your family for dinner among those people. You have set me up 
for some sort of hurt, mm. for some sort of um, ridicule, for some sort of um, being treated like I'm a guinea pig or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so not seeing color can hurt people. You know, you can um, enable people to be in very unsafe places because you don't see color. And it's a false, you offer a false sense of security because our world, our country sees color. So, yeah. you know, um, and yet I understand what people are trying to convey when they see that, when they're making statements like that. They're trying to say, I care about everybody. I, I want to be a Christian who demonstrates the love of God regardless of where people come from. That's a different statement than saying, I don't see color. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so what, I mean, and Judy, we could go all day on this conversation. No, it's we been, can't. We, really. no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just have so many follow-up questions. Uh, one of which being, um, I mean, why, why do we feel threatened by sympathizing and empathizing with somebody? Because part of what we what we might respond by saying is, well, if I validate your feelings, then I'm validating your wrong thinking or, you, you know, just paralyzing you in a place where you should grow out of that. I mean, why, why do we, why that, I think that's the thinking. Why do we? Well, I can't, I, two things uh, that jump. One, I can't grow out of being black. Mm -hmm. I can't grow out mm -hmm. of li living in a racist society. Um, in, a, in a society where there's inequalities rampant. Um, I, I can't grow out of that. Um, and uh, to validate my experience doesn't mean that you're saying um, anything other than that you're honoring me as your friend. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I am not going to validate your experience that you're a white person. So why would you invalidate my experience as a black person? You're not going to invalidate. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to invalidate that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we, we acknowledge together that our worlds are different in some ways. Um, and in our relationship, in our love for each other, we want to make sure that we don't hurt each other. And mm -hmm. in order to not do that, you have to face reality. You know, um, to take care of each other. We have to live in reality, not in some dream world. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's that's one thing. And then the other thing is for my white friends, it's. You know, I like I, I like to tell people that because you validate that these inequalities happen in our world doesn't make you guilty of being a racist or being a sexist or being any mm -hmm. of the ists out there. Um, uh, to validate simply means that you understand that the society that we live in is riddled with these inadequacies or these mm -hmm. in prejudices, these ways of oppressing people, these discriminations, these whatever. That's what invalid uh, validation does. It mm -hmm. just says you understand that these things exist. They're not, we're not post anything. We, they're real. They're everyday. They're happening right now. And that you're not guilty of them. And the only guilt you can own is if you participate in it today. Mm -hmm. 
You're not, you, you can't own the guilt of your forebearers or you can't, you didn't create this society in and of yourself. So there is no need to walk into that guilt, but you do need to say, I am a privileged person in my society. Therefore, I need to make sure that I take responsibility for the decisions or the parts that I play in my society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what validation mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sometimes, but sometimes people are afraid. People feel that if they validate um, people of color, it means that they're saying something against their own um, mm. people. And it's, it's, it's not a but. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not an, an either or. It's, it's both ends. It's, it's both ends. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I think it just, to me, what I try to keep in mind is like kind of you were implying, I don't want somebody to invalidate my own feelings like there's nothing worse than talking to somebody and them mocking you disagreeing with you because how could you feel that way how could you yeah like yeah haven't we all haven't we shown you that we love you for the last 10 years yeah yes you have and i am not doubting that you love me yeah I, i i am simply saying that the impact of my broader society affects me and affects what happens in my mind when I step out of my house. Hmm. Um, It doesn't change the fact that I love you also, you know, but you have to own that some, that because you don't live in a particular skin, you don't understand what it is to never have, never have a break from being aware that you are X. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't know what that is like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And, and let's say, just for the sake of argument, that the feelings you have, or anybody has, aren't necessarily reflective of what one might call, you know, reality or facts. That's let's right. Just, let's but, just, but, but, but you have to own that. Yeah, feelings yeah, yeah. are not, I tell my students this all the time, feelings aren't facts. Yeah. So you don't, you don't make decisions based on feelings. You don't act on feelings. But feelings tell you what's going on in your head. Yeah. Feelings inform your thought and you act on clear thinking. So you say, okay, I felt this way. No, no, let me think through that a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And it's as you think through that, that you write yourself or you're wrong is whichever Mm -hmm. direction you're going in. Um, And and just saying that, yeah, that's how I feel or just saying that's how you feel Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we can't be in a relationship Mm -hmm. together, you know? Yeah, so... so just to continue, though, mm. if, if you're living in a state of fear, mm. whether it is based on legitimate reasons or illegitimate reasons, if I come along and I say, I don't want Judy to be in fear anymore, the way to get you out of fear is not to invalidate your fears, exactly right. but to validate you so yes. that you can experience healing. Yes. And, and people and, don't understand that. Yeah. And, and for us to for us to for you, for us to create a space or for you to create a space where we can actually talk through those feelings so that we can come to clear behavior, mm-hmm. you know, right, right acting mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you invalidate, what you do is erase a safe space. Mm-hmm. End of conversation. And it, <laughs> I go, <laughs> there is nowhere to go after that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I have one last and, question. And, okay. and, you know, and it's, it's also good to say that what we're talking about 
um, these these are also principles that apply to any relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That go. These are good tenants to to govern any relationship in which one person feels less than. Mm-hmm. You know. That's that's awesome. So last question I have for you, although it always has the possibility of opening up further questions, but my 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 main last question is, there would no doubt be some people listening, although our listeners are very emotionally intelligent, so I don't know if it's any of our <laughs> listeners, but you I can make anticipate. make a big assumption there, don't you? <laughs> I anticipate, because I have thought these things before, people perhaps saying, what's all this talk about racial issues? Our mission is to talk about the gospel. Our mission is to just be on, you know, do evangelism. Talk about race and, you know, issues that minorities face. What does that have to do with the gospel? Let's just get about the work of reaching the world with the gospel. Let's talk about you know, spreading the three angels' messages or talking about Jesus. Let's not talk about these racial issues. Those are political issues. The world is never going to overcome race, but we want to teach people about Jesus. How would we respond to that idea? Well, how can you not talk about race when it directly affects the quality of life of people? Mm. Race is something that affects people's every day. It affects whether you have housing. It affects whether you have food. It affects whether you get a job, whether you, you, can, you get access to certain services. It affects your everyday just livelihood. It affects whether you get a promotion on, on a job. It affects... You know, so how could you not talk about it? I mean, the whole idea of introducing the gospel is to make the gospel real in a real way to real people's circumstances. Mm -hmm. So you got to talk about the real things that affect people and race is one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like sexuality is one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to talk about these real things Um, and demonstrate uh, and the other thing, too, is that r- this issue of race and gospel is goes back to Jesus' time. I mean, the early church had struggles with mm-hmm. race <laughs> That's not kind back of, in Jesus' yeah. day. We were eliminating people from the gospel because of where they and who they belonged to and where they came from. Mm. And even Jesus had to speak to the issue of how we divide ourselves and that you have to actually first you have to go where people are you have to look at the conditions that people are dealing with and then begin slowly to look at how the gospel can help them cope help them face help them adjust um, how the gospel can bring hope but in order to do all of that you first have to understand what the journey is mm-hmm. you yeah. know um yeah, if the gospel doesn't bring healing and hope and... How, and and how can you know what needs hope and what needs healing if you don't talk yeah. about the yeah. things that destroy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, pe- people will welcome you if they have a sense. And this is very important to me. People will welcome you and people want to be with you if they have a sense that you really see them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how can you not see me if you don't see all of me? Mm-hmm. How can you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You have to see all of me. You can't just see the parts that you want to see. 
If you're going to really understand why I need Jesus, you have to really know who I am mm. in my entirety. Mm. Mm. And That's I powerful. have to have a sense that you see me and that you love all of me and that what you're trying to get me to see from your point of view is something that will mean something to not just a part of me, but to my whole experience of what it is to be a person here mm. in the United States, mm. you know. And so we can't be afraid of the hard topics. Mm. We can't treat people as if parts of them are invisible and parts of them are visible. We have to let people know that God is a God for all of you. God cares about all aspects of you, all parts of your journey, mm. you know. And um, that means I can't be, I cannot be afraid to talk about all parts of your journey. Mm. Powerful stuff. And, and the not... church has never been very good at that. Oh. You know, and, and part of, part, you know, I just, you know, part of the, I just have to say this, part mm -hmm. of the enemy of, this, of our souls has always been to find ways to um, marginalize us, mm. to separate us, ways to um, make us feel that we don't fit in or we're not good enough. And um, I think the church, the church is a part of the society that it's in. And, and I think the church has, um, in many ways, acted in a blindness towards the real things that affect people's lives. And, and in a way, people have not trusted the church because the church did not protect them. Mm -hmm. The church didn't hold them in a safe place, you know. Mm -hmm. So... Judy, I really appreciate you sharing and uh, being vulnerable with us. And, um, you know, this is, we have these types of conversations with a great frequency in our missional community, which is why it's been such a blessing. Judy shares, you know, all of our people, we just have these open conversations as these are, the gospel has implications. Mm -hmm. And one of those implications is how we treat one another, mm -hmm. how we both affirm our differences mm -hmm. and not allow them to divide us, mm -hmm. but recognize that there is a beauty in diversity. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's, that's, that's such a thing. I mean, when, when God created the world, he created the world as a diverse place. Mm -hmm. There is color in every facet of the universe, in every organism, in everything, you know, there is no melting pot in God's world. Mm. Everything stands in its own beauty. And the gospel and God is big enough to handle all of that diversity without us having to become marginalized in any way. Mm. And and I think that that's what we have to offer the world. We have to offer the world a God that embraces all that it means to be human. Mm. You know, because this is how he created us. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, again, Judy, thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you've been challenged and your mind has been stimulated. And uh, yeah, just... Just appeal to you to, to be empathetic and to listen and to embrace people with the gospel and to 
again, you know, one of our big burdens is to form communities where it can be safe to have conversations like this. And so, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Have an awesome day, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, guys, this is Sean again. Before you go, I have a little bit of a postscript here. It's now three or four days since I recorded with Judy, and there's something that I wanted to ask her that I totally forgot, and it's been kind of weighing on my mind ever since. Um, So I'm here just recording a quick little uh, summary of something that she shared with us a few days ago. I'm here. You may even hear my kids in the background, but I just wanted to make sure this was a part of the episode. Um, So a couple weeks ago, during one of our missional community gatherings, Judy explained to us how she had been doing some work uh, on Indian Island, which is a Native American uh, reservation uh, in the middle of the Penobscot River, uh, about 10 minutes or so uh, away from the University of Maine. And uh, it's uh, a reservation for the Penobscot Penobscot tribe, excuse me, uh, here in Maine. And... um, as with a lot of uh, native populations, there's of course a lot of challenges and um, you know alcoholism and obesity and diabetes and all sorts of things. And so, Judy has uh, visited with them and um, sought to you know help w- how she can and to do work with them and to just be a listening ear. And one of the things that she shared with us, um, you know, like I said, it's literally an island that you have to drive over a bridge to in the middle of the Penobscot River. And uh, one of the things she shared with us that was so poignant and so sobering um, was that she was talking with one of the leaders there in the community. And um, one of the things he said that was just stood out to her and stood out to us when she shared it with us is that he mentioned how so many people are willing to and liberally share uh, money with them and trying to help, you know, get them to a better place. He said, you know, people are willing to give money, but nobody ever crosses the bridge. And when she said that, it was like all of us who were listening were just like, wow, that is very, very sobering, very... Um, challenging to us. You know, he said, nobody ever crosses the bridge. And I thought it was a very relevant uh, illustration and and just picture into some of what we do when it comes to mission. Uh, we'll send out money, we'll send out flyers, we'll send out, um, you know, tracks. There's my alarm going. Uh We uh, do all sorts of things from a distance, but how many of us actually cross the bridge? And so it has implications not only for our mission, but it just has implications for our race relations as well as Judy and I were talking about. You know, are we willing to cross those bridges and to reach out to people who are different than us and who need our help? Or are we trying to just reach them from across the river, so to speak, and stretch out our hands? Are we willing, though, to actually cross those bridges? So one of the things that I had mentioned, and it was kind of misunderstood when she initially shared it by the group, but I just said, you know, in order to serve those populations, you literally have to be a missionary and again, they, they kind of misunderstood what I was saying. They thought I was meaning that you go there and you just, you know, 
come and bring the truth and so forth. And what I meant was missionaries literally have to go and incarnate the message um, and live out the gospel in the context of the people they're trying to bless and serve. And it's not going to be a quick process, um, especially in this context. As Judy mentioned, you know, there is understandably a great suspicion of the white man if he's coming over to share his, you know, uh, solution, there's a lot of suspicion. And so it literally will take just going and being with people and just listening to their stories and understanding their heart and um, taking a long time to invest and just gaining trust and confidence and trying to just be among those people or whomever we're going to, whether, again, if it's it's a mission or r- racial reconciliation, uh, just going and incarnating the gospel, taking on a spirit of humility and um, just trying to be people who are uh, humbly serving and blessing. And so I thought it was just very poignant um, as an illustration of all these things we've been talking about in this episode. Are we willing to cross the bridge? Are we willing to go? And uh, I think by God's grace, hopefully you and I would be willing to do so as we seek to serve, to bless, to reconcile with those that are um, oppressed, those that have been exploited, those that need the gospel. So yeah, let's just cross those bridges. And uh, that's what I wanted to add. And so thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Thank you.